Morning, everybody. Welcome to episode two, The Empire Strikes Back. Um, one quick process note. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't, in case she's watching this morning or whether or not she is, mention Carrie out at Wisconsin, who is critical to helping to pull this workshop together. So in case she got up at this unearthly hour out there, good morning, Carrie. Um, we're going to slow down the pace a little bit today. Very first session this morning, we're going to take a small diversion out into what we've euphemistically labeled initiatives. And we're going to look at some things that aren't exactly right on topic for LMS and CMS on campus, but may shed a great deal of information on the future. And then the good news is, in the usual CSG way, the last session we're going to try and leave the most open for discussion, questions, and the usual probing analysis, and we'll do that in a roundtable format after the break. Without much further ado, we're going to walk through VJ, David, and Frank this morning and take a look at some of the lessons learned from initiatives. Uh, good morning. For those of you who have not noticed, I'm not Cis, who are not yet woken up, actually. Cecilia was supposed to do this presentation, so I'm, I'm pinch hitting. She was kind enough to uh, send us, uh, uh, send me her slides, which have been sent to you, right, Charles? Um, or which are? No, no, okay. Which, uh, in case you can't follow what's on screen, uh, uh, Charles is sending them over to you so that you can follow them on your screen. Uh, we are going to, um, I, actually there was a time when we were talking about uh, having this session deal with uh, some of the initiatives uh, that had uh, mixed uh, success over the past uh, few years. 
and uh, actually there are <laughs> words like roadkill being floated around, you know. But uh, uh, we said now, you know, that's too much to assume because you never know what might surface again or, you know, rear up its ugly head again. Uh, I am going to be uh, talking about, from CSIS slides, a little bit about uh, the Open Courseware Initiative. Like I said, uh, I am going to be following the information that she sent along. I have interjected a few initial slides just to set context. Uh, my own uh, qualification, other than being at MIT and dealing with education technology, uh, to talk about this is the fact that I was indeed involved in the initial stages of planning uh, or all the activities that led to the announcement uh, uh, of this initiative, uh, and uh, which was uh, uh, quite a bomb in the educational world. And uh, now I serve on its uh, advisory group. You know, there is a, uh, an advisory group, faculty and administrators, who sort of look at how it's progressing and uh, try to shape its directions and uh, mainly provide, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of a thinking group for, uh, for Anne Margulies, uh, who is the executive director uh, of OCW and has taken on an enormous challenge and is moving this initiative along. Uh, some of you might remember Cecilia, Cecilia Dolira, who, uh, uh, who used to be at MIT when uh, this was uh, Greg C's, uh, the old days. And um, which reminds me, I have a great shot of the three of you from Edicost, Jim, you, and Cease. Uh, and uh, so Cease is actually the technical director for OCW. And uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, uh, those aspects are also in uh, relatively good hands. Now, open courseware was MIT's uh, intent. Uh, the, the concept was that we should take the content from all of MIT's courses, graduate and undergraduate, and make it available on the Internet. And uh, uh, basically what open courseware aspired to do was to create a huge, coherent, searchable repository of uh, MIT co uh, course content. And the idea was also, uh, in the process of doing so, develop a model, uh, uh, a standards-based model for publishing course content. Now, those words are critical. OCW, uh, and this perhaps points to the separation that Chuck was trying to provide between yesterday's session and, and uh, this particular topic. OCW is a publishing initiative. Uh, a lot of what we talked about yesterday in terms of course management systems or educational applications providing those functionalities had to do with, uh, uh, certainly had to do with content, but it had to do with a lot of the transactional process, uh, you know, that happens in our, in our classes, in our subjects, in our courses. Uh, this is a publishing initiative. Um, uh, there was a lot of talk at that time when OpenCourseWare was announced, you know, is MIT uh, selling the shop, is it giving it away? And, uh, but uh, like I said, there was a lot of reflection and deliberation that led to uh, the announcement of this initiative. And one of the key uh, 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 results of all the thinking was the recognition that the real value of an MIT education came from the packaging and the deep interactions, the high bandwidth of interactions that happen between very good students and very good faculty, and therefore giving this thing away called content or course content uh, is not going to diminish. Uh, in fact, it had all kinds of other adjacent advantages by making the content available or by making the pedagogy in these courses as reflected through the structuring of the content as it was displayed. Uh, there could be a lot of discussion on how these subjects were treated, how these subjects were taught, and uh, in fact, it would advance 
MIT education and also uh, by serving as a model, advanced thinking about education in these subjects, in science, engineering, the kinds of subjects that MIT deals with, uh, advanced thinking uh, generally across the world. And that's been the kind of response, you know, all the positive, favorable response that we get. And there are gazillion uh, mail messages that, uh, that uh, the OCW group uh, gets. In fact, uh, if you do get an opportunity, I'd encourage you to uh, attend one of uh, Anne Margulies' uh, presentations on this, where she points out uh, how the world over is responding to, uh, to uh, uh, to uh, OCW. Uh, in fact, one of the things that has happened uh, in, uh, uh, in recent months is the identification of a set of universities uh, both uh, uh, within uh, this country and, uh, four, uh, and uh, four countries uh, abroad uh, who are looking at these materials and providing evaluatory input to guide the process. You know, what, what would make this kind of content more relevant to them? How can it be more easily accessible? Providing uh, uh, feedback, which is actually informing, the, informing uh, OCW's production process. Um, so it's been a few months. September 30th was supposed to be the big launch. Uh, it, uh, uh, became a soft launch for a variety of reasons, and uh, uh, and uh, those are part of the lessons learned, you know, because the amount of effort and due diligence uh, and uh, consequently time that it took uh, to do uh, uh, to make sure that uh, the content that was going to be made available or published to the world was uh, clean from an intellectual property uh, uh, point of view. Uh, was quite a bit, was much more than anticipated. And uh, that's, that's a recurrent theme in the, in, uh, in the lessons learned that I'll be talking about. Um, what uh, OCW did do was uh, launch 50 courses. Now, uh, how many of you have seen the OCW site and courses? Okay. And uh, uh, the, the 50 courses are there, and as you will see, uh, when you go to the OCW site, you know, they provide, they are a representative sample of a variety of uh, programs and courses at MIT. Uh, one of the key things that has been accomplished, uh, mind you, when this thing started, you know, it was like uh, the six blind men and an elephant, you know, and uh, OCW, yeah, we have a learning management system, it'll do that, we can produce this, and how is this different from whatever we are doing? And uh, what we had, uh, uh, what happened happened was that the project after Anne came on board had to be given some breathing space so that and one of the first things that from my vantage that she did was clarify what this project was really about and and uh, and uh, uh, clarify that this was a publishing initiative and there were all these other things like learning management systems that like the work that academic computing uh, information systems and uh, uh, various production shops the libraries there were all all the work that these groups did which were uh, relevant uh, to achieving the goals of OCW but they were not OCW and uh, that, that that was an important lesson uh, uh, for all of us to allow the project to uh, define itself, define its goals, and then figure out how various processes that led to achieving the goals of OCW needed to be aligned and uh, needed to be coordinated. Uh, the unified process 
uh, with various MIT academic computing groups to leverage resources and meet faculty needs was one of the key accomplishments that happened. Uh, Phil, in his presentation, made reference to yesterday about uh, the EdTech Partners Group and how faculty liaisons uh, in academic computing and information systems were working along with the department-based resources in, in, uh, from OCW uh, who are working along with the folks from the library in order to provide this unified support. Uh, one of the other accomplishments was the adoption of the Creative Commons license to make uh, OCW materials available to users. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, the Creative Commons uh, initiative, this was uh, uh, spearheaded by Larry Lessig, uh, and, uh, uh, the, uh, and uh, uh, it essentially aspires, and perhaps people will come up with more elegant and cleaner uh, definitions, but essentially the Creative Commons initiative uh, aspires to allow producers, faculty in this case, uh, determine and prescribe the kinds of permissions that they want to give to the materials that they produce. You know? So that that's not, uh, so uh, it's not given away to the publishers or whatever, but they can determine the extent to which they want to distribute their materials. Uh, so uh, MIT has, uh, you know, OCW has chosen uh, to adopt the Creative Commons license. They do have a nice little, uh, you know, uh, moniker over there. Uh, in terms of uh, technology, one of the things that has uh, happened with uh, uh, OCW is that they have identified, at least for the pilot stage of the project, a content management system. And uh, I know yesterday Dirk uh, talked about the CMSs and the LCMSs and the, uh, you know, other star wildcard MSs. Um, this is a content management system, and uh, we are actually using uh, Microsoft's content management system, piloting it, you know, and, uh, uh, and uh, with some amount of uh, uh, bleeding edginess to it and a lot of uh, support from Microsoft consultants uh, in helping implement uh, it for the pilot stage. Uh, so that piece of the technology. The other piece of, pieces of the technology that are playing in this are, of course, Stellar, which is uh, uh, the main vehicle uh, b uh, which uh, faculty are using in order to uh, put the content which uh, either now or eventually uh, will be harvested by OCW to put in its repositories. You know? And again, if you think back to the diagram that, uh, that uh, Phil had shown yesterday with the pipeline, the various course management systems or learning management systems, and then the stuff flowing into the content management uh, uh, repository. Uh, and uh, the clean content, uh, where, you know, uh, where the IP checks and, and this is after, and, and the tagging is done so that it can be coherently searched. Uh, so uh, uh, the content management system is an important part of the technology for achieving the publishing needs of OCW uh, that's uh, uh, in uh, place for this pilot phase of the project. Uh, the uh, other uh, technology to mention over here is uh, what we are getting uh, from Akamai at this end, which is the edge, edge service uh, uh, provision of the content. This is so that it can be delivered to you know sites out there, and Akamai is helping uh, with their technology for the uh, edge services provision. Uh, Let's see. The, the other accomplishments, and these are all uh, organizational and process uh, accomplishments. Like I said, the project had to be clarified and defined, as did the organization. Uh, uh, till Anne came, there was, you know, uh, there was some subcontracting going on. It was a lot of hello testing going on, you know, getting some materials out there, mainly trying to, to uh, 
get some sense of where different departments are at, where faculty are at in terms of their readiness or their preparation in order to contribute materials to this. And, uh, uh, and so there was no real organization in place except uh, for this advisory group uh, who, as many of our advisory groups uh, at our institutions, whose primary charge till that point was to serve as a search committee to hire the executive director, to locate this executive director, which uh, we believe we did successfully. And uh, uh, then uh, Anne has, uh, you know, obviously she has uh, CIS on board as a technical director. Uh, she has put in place uh, uh, various departmental-based resources, uh, some uh, uh, people called faculty liaisons who work very closely with the, the groups that uh, uh, Phil works with. Uh, then uh, uh, part of the organization is also creating linkages, uh, a very strong linkages act with uh, the academic media production services that uh, Bobby here uh, uh, heads and uh, which provides some of our production assistant and assistance and which actually uh, operates uh, the business of Stellar, a learning management system. So one of the accomplishments over the past few months of the project has been uh, sort of defining the organization and getting it in place. And because, as I will make uh, comments about later, because the organization is not uh, just having this humongous central organization. The OCW organization is a mix of, uh, 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 is a central uh, combined with the distributed uh, you know, resource organization. And uh, so there's some amount of interactions with departments getting their buy-in into, uh, into identifying their own people who can help faculty with, uh, uh, with the acquisition of content, as well as them uh, uh, agreeing to locating some of OCW's departmental-based resources uh, uh, at their sites to work closely with them. So, uh, the, uh, but much progress has been made uh, in terms of the organization, and that is a key accomplishment. One of the challenges, and uh, you know, and I'll, I'll mark this as uh, as a point for discussion, uh, and, and and as a key learning also. One of the challenges is, you know, for any such organization, any such project organization, is downstream. How does this integrate? with uh, existing organizations. You know, what is a sustainable model for the organization as, move, as you move ahead? Um, I'm not going to go through all these elements. Some of the, uh, just let me highlight a couple. One of the key learnings for the process so far uh, with OCW, and, and you know, we are sure this, this is going to be the case as we move on ahead, is to make faculty participation in an OCW voluntary. Unlike references that were made to business deans yesterday or business schools yesterday, uh, there is no one cracking the whip and saying thou shalt, you know? uh, because you know what the response would be. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, so uh, uh, voluntary participation. But so the whole uh, 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 challenge for OCW and one, uh, you know, from my vantage that I think it is it is meeting admirably is to make it really easy for faculty 
uh, to, to voluntarily participate, you know, which is to really lower the threshold for their participation, making sure that all the help is available, making sure it's there, and making sure, as I will point to uh, later on, making sure that the process of participating in OCW is not something that is separate from what they do in their da daily life. You know? And I mean, and that's a complex challenge, which means that uh, the means of uh, production uh, for them, which they employ for their day-to-day -day, uh, teaching and research activities, has to be aligned with this process of uh, OCW. It has to be aligned with how they use Stellar or how they use whatever learning management system that they use, and it's aligned with how they typically, uh, uh, you know, uh, produce and deliver their their uh, uh, educational materials. So uh, uh, a, a large part of creating the organization, putting the appropriate technologies in place, is about lowering that threshold so that w participation can indeed be productively voluntary. Uh, one of the, uh, 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 I mean, this is an accomplishment, but uh, one of the nice uh, learnings from this process, you know, as we're going along, you know, and. Uh, uh, even last night we were talking about it. The OCW process has led to an audit of MIT course websites and electronic content. What they have done is produced uh, humongous amounts of data, and I suspect a lot of that is going to be very, very useful in terms of uh, planning a sort of things. You know, uh, they have categorized courses, figured out who has what website, what is the state of completion. They have, uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, I should say, derived indicators of readiness you know, for people to participate based on this data, based on where they are with their content, with the nature of the content, the different uh, disciplines and subjects, uh, uh, and uh, uh, where they are in terms of uh, uh, IP readiness. So there's uh, a lot of audit of the sites and audit of the courses that has happened as a result of this process. And, uh, uh, one, and this is not one of the things that uh, uh, we had done in our non-OCW world with as much diligence and richness, you know, and this is something that we can really learn from this OCW experience, uh, even in the limited time that it's been alive, you know. Um, again, this unified strategy uh, is something to uh, look at. Uh, that is an important accomplishment, uh, and it has taken a, a, a you know a couple of. Uh, uh, interesting interventions. You know, I mean, uh, I was uh, you know uh, telling Liz last night about uh, uh, department heads meetings that our provost, you know, typically chairs, and uh, he will have Anne and me go talk to these department heads so that uh, people can see you know where the technology and academic computing support comes and is in unison with or is aligned with the, uh, the kinds of uh, stuff that OCW is trying to do so that uh, people don't confuse, get confused about who they are talking to and they don't get frustrated that there are too many points of contact uh, you know, so that people all see this as one unified process. You know? And that's, uh, uh, that is something important to consider. Uh, and uh, keep in mind, you know, especially at a place like MIT, where there are so many, you know, uh, homegrown or central systems, and you know, and uh, we don't want people to get to a stage where they say, you know, this is too much to deal with. You know, there are too many entities in this game. Maybe we'll just, you know, hunker down and do our own thing. You know, 
and uh, and uh, and uh, and what that will lead to is uh, neither the achievement of OCW's goals or anything productive for faculty, you know, in terms of what they want to do with course materials. So. Uh, I've talked about uh, most of uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, accomplishments in one form or the, uh, or the other so far. There are lots of details. Uh, another learning from the process so far has been the importance of communicating where the project is at, what its goals are. Naturally, there was a lot of confusion uh, initially thinking about how is this different from Stellar? Are you guys doing the, uh, you know, uh, uh, how are you different from OCW? Uh, who am I talking to? Uh, and uh, are we going to do 500 courses, or 1,000 courses? Uh, I have the six pet projects. Are these ready for OCW? So uh, right from the get-go, uh, there had to be a lot of communication about the intent of OCW, about the fact that uh, it was not trying to impose new pedagogy about the fact that the locus of control was squarely with faculty in this, about the fact that the process was voluntary, and about the fact that there was a lot of unified help. You know? And the uh, need to communicate uh, uh, consistently, clearly, and often meant that all the entities that were involved in supporting OCW and the OCW project itself had to get clear and get aligned, you know, and uh, those are not insignificant challenges at our institutions. And but uh, the good news is that you know it is sort of it is uh, coming together. Uh, so here are some uh, uh, key uh, uh, emerging principles as CIS has identified them. Uh, you know, the, under the subject of what we have learned, the focus on faculty authors, and I've actually uh, I've, I've spoken quite a bit about that. Uh, the idea is to encourage voluntary faculty participation, lower the threshold. Uh, uh, as an enabler to that is really having a very streamlined uh, process. And something that uh, you know, I, I you know I'd be uh, lying if I said that all the kinks have been worked out and everything is wonderfully integrated. And you know, and uh, there are some things we'll we'll discover as we go along. But the intent is to make sure that these kinks get ironed out. Uh, the idea, uh, the uh, an emerging principle again here is to build an effective distributed organization. Uh, this whole process, the publication process, you know, if you look at uh, uh, the value chain, if you look at, uh, is a complicated process, it's a complex process. Lots of players, lots of uh, participants. Uh, you want a lot of flexibility. There's a core OCW team which actually coordinates and they determine, uh, you know, who's doing what. Uh, there are unified teams going to the departments, you know, whether they're talking to the department chairs or faculty. There's a uniform there's a unified team comprising of people from OCW, uh, from academic computing, uh, from AMS who go and meet uh, the faculty and work with them to figure out where their materials are at. It's, it's, a, it's a complex uh, uh, process and uh, which is involving players at the center and in the departments and building an effective uh, uh, webbed organization uh, is very important to the successful progression of this of this uh, uh, initiative. Uh, naturally, standards, and if you look at uh, OCW's roadmap, you know, and uh, 
they, uh, they will talk about uh, at what stage they are beginning to look at what kinds of standards. The next phase is, you know, you will see OKI compliance over there. Uh, they do look at uh, uh, IMS packaging standards for their content packaging. Uh, there's all the stuff that goes with uh, metadata, you know, Dublin Core, all the RDF, the, the metadata standards, because the intent at the end of the day is to have a standards-based model that can actually be, uh, uh, you know, that can be adopted, emulated by other institutions. OCW's success is not just about making MIT's content available there. Uh, it's also about uh, telling a story, a story of what it took in order to produce or publish uh, this kind of content at this scale, you know, and uh, and in a fashion that it can be emulated to whatever degree by other institutions, you know, which uh, uh, by definition requires a standards-based model, uh, and you know, and again conceding that uh, standards themselves will be evolving. Uh, and I've talked about the communication and constantly monitoring the process, you know, measuring and evaluating, you know, uh, making sure that the goals are being understood, making sure there is progress towards uh, uh, towards the goals, making uh, being uh, real and conservative about the expectations that are being uh, set both within MIT, I should say particularly within MIT, and to the outside world about the extent of dissemination, about the extent of availability, uh, because uh, uh, every time there's a new department, a new subject, a new piece of content, uh, there are new uh, uh, worms under the rock you know, that you have to deal with. You know? And so that's, that's uh, uh, essentially you know, some of the lessons that, uh, and observations on the OCW process so far. Uh, I'll be happy to take questions. That's good. I mean, and this is the kind of information, you know, that you should really send to uh, OCW. I will point out that all you need to view OCW materials is a browser. Now, if you were to use them, but if you had to use them, then, uh, you know, you sort of uh, raise the bar, you know, and that's where a lot of this, uh, what we talk about in terms of uh, uh, standards and LMS-ish things are okay, I come in place, you know. Oh, indeed, indeed, and it's and even if you think about uh, 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 yes. 
Yeah, that's I'm going to address that. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Jim Farmer's uh, question was uh, well. First, his comment was that uh, uh, there are institutions who uh, typically uh, uh, where faculty are required to give uh, all rights, you know, on their materials to the institution. Uh, in the case of MIT, uh, that uh, it was very nice on charitable on MIT's faculty's part to give away the rights to the institute, and uh, uh, and then uh, uh, and then uh, you also observe based on the experiences of places like Maricopa Community College that uh, the implications of OCW in terms of materials and usage are much wider. Uh, much more extensive. Uh, the one correction is uh, that faculty are not giving up their rights. In MI, faculty still retain the copyright uh, to, to what they produce. It, they have given MIT uh, license to distribute uh, and uh, uh, permission to distribute, and at this stage to distribute for uh, non-commercial purposes. So that's you know uh, uh, the thing. Uh, uh, and then you know if there are other kinds of users, commercial users, that's a separate negotiation with the faculty. But they are the owners; they are the holders of the copyright uh, for what they produce. Uh, in terms of the implications for other institutions and for education in general, you know, it is quite significant. You know, Shigeru Miyagawa, uh, and uh, which is why you know um, when you listen to different presentations in OCW, uh, uh, Shigeru, who teaches Japanese uh, at MIT, you know, he has a very nice observation about how typically faculty at our institutions, you know, we share our research, our research is very public, our research is applauded. You know. OCW, by virtue of making the content and through, by virtue of uh, uh, making the content and courses and all the transaction in a course visible, is making MIT's pedagogy visible. You know. And, and this is not to show off MIT pedagogy necessarily, but the fact it raises interesting questions, you know, and it will lead to a lot of discussions. And believe me, a lot of those discussions have actually started. There are communities of practices which are forming around some of the subject materials, you know, people discussing, uh, because now that you have made it visible, people look at whether this is the best way to, uh, to treat a particular topic or a particular subject. So it's actually advancing a lot of conversation you know, uh, about uh, the content and the process of education in those disciplines. You know. So the, the, the implications, both in terms of the material and the process, are quite significant. Uh, yeah, Oren. Um, the question, Oren's question was, jeez, uh, everyone's acting like Gavin. <laughs> uh, Oren's question was that, uh, uh, well, about uh, he wanted to comment on the IP, uh, you know, about the difficulties with IP cl uh, clearance and what are the kinds of problems we are running into in terms of IP. And uh, the second question was had to do with the relationship with uh, the content management system that uh, is being used in the pilot phase and uh, the, the relationship between that and DSpace, uh, which is our digital repository project. Uh, first, about the uh, 
uh, IP issues. I mean, these are your typical IP issues. Uh, image, a lot of stuff that we have taken for granted in our face-to-face -face teaching, you cannot take for granted materials that you put out. There's, uh, first of all, once uh, if there are uh, uh, images that are casually embedded in your lecture notes, you know, making sure that there is clearance for that. If there's reference to other copyrighted material, to make sure that the necessary permissions are there. These come up. So it's a lot of stuff that we have either taken for granted or were fair game under fair use, which uh, are not, you know, and so it's not readily apparent that those rules still apply. So it's uh, those kinds of situations that the OCW uh, group runs into going and making sure that the clearances are there in some uh, or um, and getting the appropriate permissions in some rare cases and i'm wondering if i have any real examples no even actually acquiring the content so that it can be put over there and in many cases where uh, uh, where either the permissions or the source is not clear making a reference to the source rather than actually having those materials you know so these are all the kinds of uh, situations that uh, that uh, they face um, as far as uh, um, DSpace goes, OCW is looking at DSpace as the archival repository for OCW content. Right? And uh, uh, there was some discussion earlier on whether there is another content management system needed. But you have to remember that DSpace, when the project was launched, was launched uh, with archiving in mind. You know? And uh, it was not seen, A, as a repository for uh, what we call transaction, transactional content. And, uh, uh, and the, it, was, it had not, uh, in its um, uh, uh, initial development, it had not looked at the kinds of considerations that OCW was, you know, the kinds of goals that OCW was uh, trying to meet. You know. So again, this uh, speaks to the evolution of these projects. Here is OKI, you know, creating uh, an architecture for educational applications. There's DSpace, which is creating, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, open source software, and I would say, an, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure for making sure that uh, uh, research materials can be very easily acquired, uh, stored, retrieved, and uh, and archived. And there's OCW, which is a publishing, uh, 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 which is a publishing project, you know. And now what we are trying to do is establish the linkages you know, between these projects you know, so that their separate roles and their intersections are clearly understood. You know? Ken. In uh, some courses, there's presumably reference to tools that are available only at MIT. I mean, how do, uh, when you publish them, how do you handle situations where there's embedded content that people obviously can't run someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, again, that's it's a very good uh, Ken's question was uh, if the if the content or the materials that are there in OCW have either embedded content or tools uh, uh, which are very very MIT uh, I'll, I'll put some words in your mouth, Ken, which are very, very MIT infrastructure and technology specific. And people at other sites, other locations, go take this content. How are they going to run it? And you, you have just asked and answered the architecture question, the OKI question. Okay, which is uh, the hope is that these, uh, that through standards, you know, either through packaging standards 
and through uh, uh, and uh, through adhering to uh, you know the architectural specifications such as those uh, put out by uh, by OKI, the ability for people to take this content and use them in other sites will be enhanced. Now it might not always require that degree of effort. You know, some of this could be content you can I mean, you can take and run with whatever applications you might have on your desktop it's not always a significant challenge but uh, uh, the the long term uh, quality response to your question is that um, a it's, it is a challenge and we mitigate the challenge by uh, looking at standards and making sure that both the products over here that are being put uh, on the MIT site uh, are built to the standards as well as applications and tools elsewhere you know are developed to those standards you know it's any other question good thank you then uh, Chuck ah Um, my name is David Hirsch. Uh, I wanted to thank Chuck and everybody else for inviting me to my first CSG conference. Uh, what's going on with my display? Um, there we go. Um, yesterday's focus was really on um, what, is, what are some of the issues involved in building um, flexible and useful learning management systems. <clears throat> the comments that I'm going to offer today approach the issue from a slightly different perspective. And this is, uh, this is the question of how, how are people using uh, the learning management systems that we're creating. Um, you can build the best LMS in the world, but uh, I think many of us have found that Despite all the functionality, many of the faculty are just uploading Word documents, and the students are printing them. So, you know, what can we what can we say about uh, best use of it? Um, so, what I'm going to talk about is uh, Yale's experience dipping its big toe into distance learning because distance learning is not a traditional part of Yale's mission. Uh, through participation in a distance learning initiative called the Alliance for Lifelong Learning. Um, 
uh, which is uh, which I'll explain what that is if, if you haven't already heard about it. Um, the Alliance for Lifelong Learning, it's a not-for-profit not distance learning venture, three partners currently Oxford, Stanford, and Yale. Princeton was a founding member but decided to refocus its, uh, its uh, attention elsewhere. Uh, was established September 2000. First courses were offered in a beta uh, trial in fall 2001. And currently, uh, All Learn is offering about 50 non-credit online courses. Uh, and they also are experimenting with short three or four day forums on um, topics of uh, uh, especially timely interest. Um, it's concentrating on arts and sciences. A primary audience is uh, alumni, alumnae of uh, the three universities, family and friends. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, in August of last year, they, they opened up enrollment to non-affiliated people. Um, the courses range from four weeks to 10 weeks. They're created by faculty members at the three campuses, uh, coordinating with course development groups on campus. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> the distribution and the delivery issues are handled by a central administration in New York. The online, uh, the, the faculty create the courses, but the actual running of the courses, it's similar to a lecture discussion format. The faculty create the lectures, and the TAs actually do the discussions uh, with, with the students. Typically graduate students or junior colleagues of the faculty author, uh, but sometimes the faculty themselves want to teach the course. Um, why did Yale get involved with this? Uh, well, like I said before, Yale has not had that much experience with distance learning. And when this initiative started, this was considered a good way for Yale to find out what is distance learning all about and what's in it for us. Um, another benefit is outreach to alumni um, and beyond, uh, showcasing university's finest teachers, um, a fringe benefit that we didn't really anticipate but ended up being significant, we thought, was giving graduate students some experience teaching online, especially in this job market. Uh, any kind of extra experience they get is good. Um, it provides us with a good environment to experiment with instructional technology <clears throat> and whenever possible to develop uh, learning objects that could be used for multiple purposes, both for this particular audience as well as on campus. <clears throat> and most importantly, in some ways, this vehicle gives us a chance to get Yale faculty involved so that they can see what the possibilities are for using instructional technology beyond just posting their syllabus. <clears throat> uh, the LMS that All Learn is using is Prometheus. Uh, they have not really customized it uh, in any significant ways. Um, and it has all the standard LMS capabilities. Um, I won't bother going into all of them. Uh, the student demographics of this particular population, this is, this is quite a new audience for Yale. <coughs> um, these are people who are taking courses out of an interest. They're, they're not getting credit for it. It's not for professional advancement. They're paying for it out of their own pockets. Uh, the average age is 48, <clears throat> men and women equally represented. 75% of them have advanced degrees, and 
<coughs> excuse me, when this study was conducted a year ago, there were 27 countries represented uh, uh, in the student body. So what have we learned? Um, I came up with eight, eight points. We've learned a lot more things, but I tried to organize it into eight. Um, a lot of these are, seem pretty obvious, but uh, I figured it, it, it's worth emphasizing them nevertheless. Different audiences have different motivations and levels of commitment. <clears throat> it's been a learning experience for us uh, what, to, to find out who is this population, what do they want. Um, do they want hardcore education, or do they want w what I've called edutainment? Um, people get education from PBS. People get education from Google searches. People get education <coughs> in a traditional 14-week course. What does this particular audience want? Um, with this audience, there are different carrots and sticks. Uh, when you have a captive audience of 18 to 22-year-olds taking a course for credit for their major, you've got a lot of carrots to you know, increase their, their participation and a lot of sticks to beat them with if they don't participate. This is a different audience. So what can we learn about reaching this audience and keeping them engaged um, that ultimately might affect the way we teach on campus? Um, and obviously a 14-week syllabus <clears throat> with a lot of writing assignments, uh, a lot of reading, uh, typical characteristics of a Yale College course uh, might not be appropriate for this particular audience's motivation or level of commitment. Another thing we've learned is that it can be difficult to predict which tools, uh, which teaching formats, and even which courses are going to be uh, best suited for this particular audience. So for instance, many of the original courses that were developed the hypothesis was we can get a professor to donate, you know, to, to dedicate not very much time to create weekly introductions, uh, reading assignments, and then maybe three or four discussion questions for each week. That format will work sometimes for a course, but we can't assume without experimentation whether a threaded discussion board is going to be the preferred way uh, of interaction. Uh, we found to our surprise that in some cases, the discussion boards weren't used at all. Everybody waited for the weekly chat. Um, so we can't, we can't know in advance. Um, also, we can't assume that everybody wants to learn in a group environment through a group discussion. Um, we, uh, this, is, this is anecdotal, but uh, it, it, it seemed to us that when you can offer learners <coughs> activities that they can do on their own and learn, uh, that they could do as part of a group and learn, uh, text space as well as <clears throat> some video and audio, they seem to be happier because they can find their particular preferred way of learning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, number three, faculty authors appreciate the guidance of experienced online course developers. Uh, this, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an online course developer, so this would seem obvious to me, but it didn't seem obvious to to people when Yale started, because the, f the fear was, well, we can't tell the faculty what to do. We can't tell the faculty how to teach. Um, I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a manner of how we communicate with the faculty and work with them rather than not being able to help them. The fact is that most Yale faculty have never taken or taught an online course. This is a completely new environment for them. 
Uh, on top of that, most Yale faculty have never designed a course for this type of audience. They've designed it for, for the students on campus taking degrees. Um, and also, m most of the faculty authors, since they don't have the experience, they don't know what their possibilities are. They don't know what might be the best way to present this material or teach. So they seem to really appreciate having concrete examples and uh, having somebody to, to coach them. Um, number four, good teaching is good teaching, regardless of the technologies used. Um, I mean, this, is, this was my point at the beginning, that uh, we can spend most of our time thinking about how can we provide the best tools, um, and then the faculty can concern themselves with how can I provide the best content. But the, the quality of the instruction and, and our experience has been just as important, if not more important, than how versatile the LMS might be or how good the content might be. Um, Lifelong learners want as much contact with faculty members as a traditional student does. Um, and we found that, that by developing an online training for the, the new instructors about what are the best ways to use this technology, what are the best ways to teach this, this population, helped immensely with uh, the student satisfaction. Um, faculty interest and buy-in is most effective when led by other faculty. Uh, a couple of people yesterday said, uh, you know, we thought that if we built it, they would come, but they don't necessarily come no matter how many banners we wave. So how do we get the faculty involved? Uh, probably the most, uh, the most effective recruitment has been done by uh, another Yale faculty member um, herself who has those connections. She can speak with other faculty as a faculty member. She understands their concerns, their motivations, and maybe they might listen to her more than they would listen to somebody on the support staff. Uh, another thing that we found is that sometimes word of mouth from one faculty member to another uh, is more influential than any kind of advertising we do, and that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing if uh, <laughs> they haven't had a good experience. And finally, there's, there's the competitive spirit. Um, if this person can do it, then I certainly can, because, you know, he's no, he's no technical whiz. Uh, number six, older technology is sometimes best. Um, we're, of course, we want to introduce new technology to the faculty, but especially with, with this particular audience, sometimes uh, it, you know, streaming video uh, is not going to be effective. Uh, they might have bandwidth issues. Uh, some of them might have, might be accustomed to learning through books on tape, and they want, they want the lectures on a cassette tape. They can listen to it in their car. Um, they don't like sitting in front of the computer to watch a streaming video. They would rather have it on a DVD or a VHS cassette. Um, some of them don't even want to watch the video at all. They would rather read a transcript. So we learned uh, the hard way, I suppose, that we have to we have to offer these media in multiple formats. Um, and another point is, uh, it might it, it's very convenient for faculty to post text-heavy resources online uh, or a PDF of a journal article. That way, the students can always get it whenever they want. But the students then have to print it out, and they're going to print it out anyway. So. Uh, especially for this particular audience, they would rather be sent a physical copy of something. 
Uh, number seven, multiple uses for learning objects should be considered before development begins. Uh, this is another thing we've been learning the hard way. Um, since the Alliance for Lifelong Learning is using uh, Prometheus, but Prometheus is not the LMS used on campus, <clears throat> the question becomes, well, if, if one of the benefits to faculty is that they retain rights to the materials that we create for this audience, well, then how do the faculty take those materials and use them for their on-campus on courses? If it's uh, simple HTML, that's not a problem. But when you, when you start creating things within the LMS, like uh, a form-based online test or file databases that are housed within the LMS structure and then would have to be copied out uh, onto our classes server, um, it's, uh, it's a pain in the butt. Um, and plus, you know, this, this is something p other people have talked about, that uh, just uh, the faculty may have developed a course that works great on campus, but it's heavily dependent on fair use, uh, on use of copyright materials, or, um, or online resources that are licensed through the library. Uh, and obviously, we have to, for, um, well, I don't know, it's, it's, it's still up to debate. I mean, do, do these courses for this not-for-profit organization, do they fall under fair use or not? Um, there's some debate, and to, to play it safe, the lawyers are permissioning everything that goes on. So we've had to do some retooling. Uh, and finally, uh, assessing the effectiveness of particular technology should be integral to both development and delivery. Um, one of the challenges for us on campus is that the type of research and surveying done by AllLearn was done primarily uh, for uh, institutional research and for marketing purposes. So the data that they got uh, was in the aggregate for all their courses. So 85% of all users said this. Well, that is not particularly helpful to individual uh, instructors uh, or to course developers. We don't know for each particular course what's working and what's not working. Um, so we're, uh, we are creating course uh, and instructor specific um, assessments uh, to inform uh, revision and new development uh, and delivery issues. Uh, and um, you know, just the final point, without appropriate assessments, our experiments uh, have uncertain value, uh, and especially in time of budget cuts, uh, uncertain future. So uh, assessment, I think, uh, you know, beyond just numbers of hits, but actually the tough questions of how are people using this, how do faculty feel about it, uh, and is it really working are crucial. Um, those are the eight points that I pulled together. Here are a couple URLs if, uh, if you want to learn more about this initiative. There's the All Learn website. And uh, uh, I didn't have time to show any of the cool stuff that, that we've been producing at the Center, of Media, Center for Media Initiatives for these courses. But if you're curious, you can uh, go to the CMI website and check them out there. That's it. Any questions? Is this likely to be financially sustainable? And is it Making money or breaking even? <laughs> What's the? Um, it's you know it, it, that that those issues are really outside of my domain. 
I'm I'm just the busy bee, you know, building the stuff and working with the faculty. But um, the university structure and then the um, the initiative structure in New York is I'm not, I'm not privy to any of those things. So I don't, I don't know if Phil has any. If, if Phil is privy to any of that. Not out of business yet. <laughs> so you think it's likely to grow and succeed? There was a major transition that occurred in the last few months, and we're waiting in terms of leadership and structure, organization, financing, the whole smash. We're waiting to see how that leads into the future. In the meantime, as you can see, we're trying to mine all the lessons we can out of what we've been doing. Right. One of the other key lessons that David Pumley didn't say is, as the academic media technology person, I'm thrilled to have the CMI, and it has a long-term future. In some sense, all learn will be what all learn is. From an on-campus perspective, the lessons learned, the technology they bring is well worth it, and there's a real future. One of the real real benefits that is brought to the CMI in particular is uh, because of interest in this initiative, uh, we had, uh, we've had uh, well over 100 faculty members on campus come voluntarily to find out more and to say that they're interested in, in learning about this. And if we just put a sign out on our door that said, Center for Media Initiatives, we do cool stuff, we would not have had that, that sort of traffic in our office. So word has gotten out. The faculty are looking at what each other's doing. They're getting excited. And that's been a great, a great benefit. Um, I really don't know. I mean, I, uh, I guess uh, b before I came to Yale, I was I was working at Northeastern where we used Blackboard, and I bitched about Blackboard all the time. But now that I've been using Prometheus, it's actually looking a little bit, you know, better. So I guess my hope, my personal, I, I have no idea uh, on a strategic level what the plans might be. But my assumption and my hope would be that as Blackboard phases out Prometheus, even though they deny they're going to do that, we all know that they will, um, that, that they're going to find some seamless way of uh, migrating from, from Prometheus into Blackboard. That's my hope. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a, as a developer, I get frustrated sometimes with the limitations of, well, we, we get disappointed no matter what, what the LMS is because we want to do certain things. But, but in terms of uh, on the user side, the faculty, the online instructors, and the students, um, they, don't, they don't have any, any, any issues with the LMS itself. They're much more more concerned about uh, the, the content that's in the course and the sort of interaction that they're having with both the online instructors and the faculty. 
Yeah, I'm really curious about the way you've got faculty involved in this. From what I understood, most of the courses are in uh, humanities and social sciences. Yeah. Which historically, faculty has learned and has taken on this. So, and what is the key? How um, the, yeah, the, 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 question, the question was, um, uh, especially given the fact that the emphasis is arts and sciences, uh, and, you know, we might generalize to say arts and science professors might not be the most, uh, among, uh, among all the pioneers wanting to find out about, about new technology for teaching. How have we gotten so many arts and science faculty interested in this? Um, I think... I think there's, I think there's a, there's a few, a few reasons for it. Uh, again, I think the most important, um, the most important reason is because of the our, our on-campus faculty liaison, Diana Kleiner, who is a faculty member as uh, as well as an administrator. Um, she she's been teaching at Yale for I don't know, 20 years, and. Uh, as both an administrator and a faculty member, she has those networks. She has those connections. She has her friends. She's excited about it, um, and her excitement is, an, is uh, contagious. And also, she's by her own definition not a technical person. She's an art historian and a classicist. But she's gotten all, all charged up about it. Um, and so she, that enthusiasm and her connection, she was able to bring on a few high-profile faculty uh, in psychology, um, in, um, uh, in economics, uh, and uh, we uh, at, at the CMI, we've done our best to publicize what the faculty are doing uh, on campus so that they're that's one of the issues. How do faculty find out what their colleagues are doing? A lot of it is word of mouth, but it's also our responsibility to get the word out. Um, um, another, I guess another issue is what, what motivates the faculty to do this. Uh, I think there are a number of motivations. For some of them, it might be simply financial. Uh, we, uh, many of the most esteemed faculty at Yale are now emeritus. So they're no longer in the classroom, but they love teaching. They're still publishing best-selling books on Ben Franklin. Uh, one of the people we worked with was Ed Morgan, who's, I think he's approaching 90, but he just came out with a you know, great book on Ben Franklin last year. He was interested in, uh, in engaging with this because he just had his book published, so this is a way to base a course around his book uh, and also get some feedback since he's not in the classroom. Uh, other people might be interested in the money. Uh, they're not. They're not paid an awful lot uh, for course development. Um, but I think one of the incentives is knowing that uh, is that we have a development team on hand who's going to make it easy for them. Uh, uh, and it is a lot of work to put, especially some of the media intensive courses. But they're excited about it. Uh, many of them love being on video. Uh, and we try to make the videos high enough quality that any negative experience they had in the past with, you know, cameras like this, uh, showing that we've had people say, oh, I had a terrible experience, I never want to be on video. If we can show them, we can, we can capture your lecture style in a way that makes you look great and a way that will preserve your lectures uh, and make them accessible to a whole new audience, 
then they get excited about it. They have, they have had bad experiences. They have presuppositions about what this might be. Right now, we've got a large enough mass of stuff to show them and a large enough pool of faculty from, um, you know, right, right now I'm working on a course with a, an astronomy professor on discovering black holes. Um, we also have courses in, in art history and literature. There, there's a wide enough range that, um, that now we can show faculty, you know, here's a range of stuff. What excites you? What do you think would work for you? And that seems to help a lot. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's not the university lawyers. W one of the reasons for, w one of the benefits to the, the universities of having this alliance is that there's a core staff in New York who takes care of permissionings, um, uh, licensing, the, uh, distribution of, of course materials. So luckily, Luckily, we don't, we're not on campus. We're not saddled with those responsibilities. I, I can't tell you for sure. They, they have one person who I think is one full-time employee in New York uh, for permissioning issues. Uh, if, if they're disconnected from your content, if there's something that they can't hear and they get into a transaction, yes. Yeah, and I mean, we've had a lot of lessons learned. This, this is also a very new arrangement. Uh, uh, trying to develop uh, media and courses on campus and coordinate with with a central administrative uh, group in New York. Um, uh, but yes, we, we, we have had to make adjustments to courses. Uh, some, some museum wants to charge us 150 bucks to use a postcard size image of Nathaniel Hawthorne. So we decide, screw it, I can get a free one from the Library of Congress site. So, you know, we, we make adjustments when necessary. Yeah. The question is about the financing for, for the course development. Um, uh, I, to tell you the truth, I don't know all the details of it, but uh, but there, uh, the 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 alliance as an institution is funded by the three individual universities and then funds are dispersed from from the, the central administration to pay back the schools for course development, media production. Uh, I, I don't know any of the specifics beyond that. Yeah. Um, one of your slides said that you, uh, the um, primary uh, dialogue is handled by graduate students and juniors of the faculty, but then another slide said that the, the audience wanted lots of contact hours for the faculty. Yeah, the, the question, and, and the, you, you, you're right. Uh, it, was, it wasn't just a, a, a slip-up. The, the question was, uh, on the one hand, the faculty involvement is primarily during the development process rather than the teaching process. Graduate students typically do the teaching. Um, but one of, the, one of the key selling points of these courses and of this whole initiative is, hey, get the chance to engage with faculty from your institution with world-class faculty. Well, the faculty don't have time to run weekly discussion sections and chat sessions. Uh, uh, and some of them, especially at the beginning, were disappointed that they didn't have more contact with the faculty members themselves. 
uh, what, uh, a couple of ways that they've tried to address that. One is we've been including a lot more video of the faculty, um, and we, we try to stay away from just the talking head lecture. We try to make it a little bit more personal as if the person is sitting in the faculty's office and chatting about things. Um, another, another technique that has been very successful is having the faculty member uh, commit to um, several hours over the duration of the course to participate in a live chat. Uh, and the students really appreciate that. Uh, some students take the initiative, track down the faculty member's email address, and do start up conversations. But by and large, the faculty members have loved it. Uh, they, they haven't complained about being inundated by you know, students from all over the world asking questions. I guess I should uh, cut short in the interest of time, but uh, thank you, and uh, that's it. <laughs>
various reasons. Um, and as a result, some discussion was had, papers were exchanged uh, in the way this is done, long arguments were sent back and forth, um, and it was decided that we would put up Harvard at Home, which is something some people had seen, it's at home.harvard.edu, which are lectures and activities from around campus. Initially it was only for alumni, it was very restricted to alumni, uh, actually to alumni who had access the Alumni Association site. That, that's not all alumni. We tried to explain to the Alumni Association that just because someone goes to the Alumni Association site doesn't mean that you have reached all alumni. Uh, this took several years for us to convince them. And uh, about two and a half years later, um, through various means on campus, mostly various financial uh, dealings as to how this was financed, we, uh, we got them to agree to open this to the world. We were happy to open it to the world right away, and some little cracks had creeped in in which some of our Harvard at Home items had appeared on other websites. But it's now open to the world, and you can see it and enjoy it. It's uh, high quality. The idea was we were going to put up really high quality productions. Um, there's no interaction. It wasn't going to cost anything. Uh, they vary. Some of them are lectures. Some of them are whole sets of lectures and museum visits. Some of them are panel discussions. There's even a feature on the Yale-Harvard football game, which Harvard won, by the way, at that particular year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, hasty pudding and some other things up there. At the same time, Harvard does have an extension school. And, and Harvard's extension school has over 20,000 students um, seven or eight thousand of whom at any one time take courses. These, I hope, are the, these are numbers a little hard to pin down. Um, and this is a cash cow for Harvard. Uh, the, uh, there, there are really two purposes of it, uh, uh, as I see. Uh, one is to, uh, to earn money, which, which uh, it does, which is really very, very uh, well done. Um, there are lots of students, and they pay, and they get degrees. They get Harvard Extension degrees, Masters of Liberal Arts and uh, Bachelors of Liberal Arts. Uh, they're they're uh, qualified in that way. And then there's a the new degree, a Masters of uh, Information Sciences, which is a computer science degree. So uh, the Extension School had offered that service to the community um, and charged uh, regular tuition for it. In addition, uh, the Extension School offers courses for Harvard staff, um, and and they take all kinds of courses. The uh, one of the planners in the uh, architectural architectural planning office told me she was enjoying her course on Jane Austen, which was paid for by Harvard, and she went to the to the class. And I asked her were there were a lot of people in the class. She said, Oh yeah, it's packed full of people who want to take course on Jane Austen. Uh, many of them are Harvard staff, but in any case, the Harvard Extension School is a very successful operation. Um, and they then put together a program in which they put courses online. The big, the big uh, coup on this, most of the courses online, I'll show them in a minute, most of the courses online in the Extension School are um, computer science courses. And the big coup is that they, they tried something three years ago which was very successful. They took the recordings of regular computer science courses taught by Harvard faculty, streamed them, uh, saved them, streamed them out to people who signed up 
off campus in the extension school, gave them dedicated teaching fellows, and they took all the quizzes, tests, did all the same homework assignments and the final exam. They compared results and found that the people who were not regular admitted Harvard students did just as well as the Harvard students did, which was a little bit disappointing for people around Harvard. I went to sleep here. So, in any case, um, the... Uh, we'll come back up there again. Yeah. So, that was very interesting. That's, that's proven successful. Harvard, basically, it's, it's the faculty who do this say there's no work on their part. They teach like they ordinarily teach. The extension school puts the courses together based on what the faculty are teaching. And they did the same thing with the extension courses, the evening courses. They bring in cameras. They do fairly medium quality video production. They would post process it and put on the PowerPoint slides, give them special TAs, and they would then take the courses uh, in the semester after they were taught. So uh, originally they were taught one semester, and the next semester the instructor was paid to teach a course again, but didn't have to do anything. It was just taught online, and the instructor would interact with the students. So that program has been going on for about three years um, and has many, many students in it. Well, so we thought we got it. You know, we thought we, we fixed it. Uh, and we learned the lesson. We did our Harvard Home for Alumni in the general world, and we did the extension school. We got a new president. And in, uh, in 2002, President Summers went to the um, <laughs> president's retreat, and he came back saying, hey, let's join all, let's join all learn. All we need to do is spend like three or four million dollars, and we can be part of it. It's very, very high-quality stuff. And it is really high-quality stuff. You look at the all learn stuff, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is much more beautiful than our expansion school sites. Well, anyway, faculty again started to write up papers, and sent, uh, President Summers reads position papers. You know, he was Secretary of the Treasury and other things. He was a Harvard professor before. He, he reads position papers. So we had to write up position papers, which we presented. Uh, for one, as the extension school said, hey, we're making a lot of money on this. Don't put up competition to the extension school. And uh, again, um, I, the uh, result was that uh, we didn't join All Learn. And uh, here are the sites. And we uh, learned that uh, faculty opinions count. We knew that already at Harvard. There's some other lessons, I think, but uh, I'll maybe leave those unstated. Um, now, uh, that one's the lessons learned is that word's not important there. Um, I'll um, let me go. Let me go off of this for a second and go to those sites. Just you can take a look at them. I set them up here. Uh, Harvard at home which has no www, is at home.harvard.edu. Um, and uh, we do some very nice, very nice uh, items there. We, we went to this uh, conference and did uh, a series of uh, lectures out of that conference. Um, you can watch them. They're all video. They're, they're quality. We have some, what we, one thing we gained from this is we hired some excellent video people who also now work for us regularly. And regardless of what happens to Harvard at home, we can do some excellent video now because we have a, a, a team doing it. Uh, there's a, there are about 25 uh, units up there right now, um, which you can see anytime. Here's, of course, the, the ball game, the, the football game. But there are some very 
involved ones. This this one, uh, Laura Ulrich, is one I would recommend. They have they take a trip to the Peabody Museum um, and they look at the uh, artifacts that Lewis and Clark bought back, which Harvard has in the museum. And uh, she discusses how you do history with uh, museums and um, talks about her own career and what she loves about teaching, and there's a sample course and so on. We did some other things. This one on Yates here is very interesting. It's a, um, one of Harvard's favorite lecturers, Helen Vendler, um, did uh, her big Yates lecture. We wanted to put up some pictures, so we tried to do this um, looking at what was available. We actually bought some pictures. We did spend that money at one point. That's the only time we ever did it to see what it was like. Uh, some of these are low-tech. The school vouchers is just audio and uh, and PowerPoints, but there's some convincing arguments in there. In any case, that's Harvard at home. And uh, also, the extension school you can look at, I'm, of course, so sold on it. My uh, my son, uh, my best, my best uh, example is my son... Uh, Took one of is taking one of these courses, and it's really hard, and there's a lot of work to do. But what he loves is the the interaction with the professor, um, who answers his emails, and he has the TFs, and he turns in his assignments. He gets them graded very intensively with a lot of marks and notes on them. And uh, every term now for the last three years, they've uh, Harvard uh, Extension School has offered about 30. Uh, courses you can see most of them are computer science. There are a couple that are not. Uh, we got American Revolution here and uh, metaphysics and statistics and marketing strategies. But um, in any case, there, it's 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 a successful program. Um, this one, my son's taking. A, I didn't get any break on it. I paid the uh, uh, fourteen hundred and twenty-five dollars, uh, which uh, I think is worth it at this point. He gets degree credit for it and. Uh, actually uh, can count toward that master's in uh, information sciences if he assembles enough courses. Actually, it's pretty uh, intensive. I asked the, uh, the head of this program how many people had matriculated into the master's program. And that's not only the online people extension. He said 150 people had matriculated, which to matriculate, you have to take four of these courses um, and then uh, uh, and, and present a bachelor's degree. Um, and then you have to take six more and do a project on campus to get that master's degree. So in, in about five years, the, the degree was not always online. Um, they've had only ten people get the master's degree. So it's actually a pretty selective program, and a lot of people try these courses, but it's tough to get through. All right, so I have one more lesson quickly, and then uh, this, but the, the other lesson is the one that I talked about yesterday. And... Uh, this one, uh, those of you who were yesterday, saw basically the on-campus system uniformity of LMS and CMS. Um, this was a very positive experience. Uh, we, there was a big review process about what uh, system would be best, how would we best put up uh, these systems. Uh, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences um, already had the ICG toolkit, which had been available for several years and had been developed and was was a very good one and praised uniformly. Um, and uh, the uh, the discussion 
at the end of these sets of meetings was that Harvard should try to go with that ICG toolkit um, for more parts of campus. The provost and CIO supported this, put money into it, and, and set up an iCommons group that was to link the faculties in the way they did um, LMS, uh, um, LMS, and uh, it was very successful. The, uh, the group has reached out, and you saw yesterday that uh, seven of the schools are using it, and we may go to eight, and uh, there are about 20 developers. These are the numbers you saw yesterday. I thought this was, um, there aren't any decisions by fiat on CMS at Harvard. Maybe at the business school there was, but uh, in the other places not. And my, my answer here, and I think it's fitting for CSG, which was founded with the same idea, is that with collaboration, with the help of some funding, you can approach a common solution and that's the way this organization was founded people would st throw stones in and uh, would uh, try to build common solutions through collaboration and, and we did it on campus successfully I think this is a real success story and we learned anyway from our local uh, activity that it was successful and you saw some of that yesterday anyway that's what I have questions comments good finish this one basically on time. It's time for the break, right? Yep. Yeah.